Good, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, being verses 1 through 6 this morning. Continuing our, our series through the epistle of Peter to the elect exiles in Asia. Listen as I, I read God's word for us from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past that for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a, I guess it's somewhat of a classic preacher story. I know I've certainly heard it in, in sermons before, but there's a, a story about how the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo was communicated to how it reached England. And uh, so... First of all, the news was carried from, from the, the, by a ship that sailed from Europe across the English Channel uh, to England's southern coast, and then the news was relayed. And I, like, I don't know, I knew that semaphore flag waving was an actual thing that was useful at some point in, in human history, but I never knew that it's, this was kind of how it was done. But it was relayed from the coast by signal flags to London. So like people with the, you know, like we kind of, there was a merit badge in Boy Scouts that we, no one ever got. Um, but the report re- was received in Lon- London and then on top of a cathedral, they had the flag guy and he started to spell out uh, the message and it was, you know, Wellington defeated and then a, a thick London fog rolled in and obscured the rest of the message. And for hours, uh, the news of these just two words, Wellington defeated, uh, just spread throughout the entire city. And the, you know, the threat that Napoleon uh, represented to England was, was very grave. It was one of the gravest threats that they'd ever faced thus far. And so there was... Uh, this incomplete information, and they thought that Napoleon had won, and and so there was sadness and mourning. But then the fog began to lift, and the flags high up on the cathedral completed the news, finished the 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 sentence. Wellington defeated the enemy. Enjoys a steak dinner, names it after himself. Um, England. I thought that was kind of funny. Like, anyway, Beef Wellington. All right. 
the English fears, like they'd been just totally unfounded. Joy immediately replaced the gloom. It was actually dancing in the streets, rejoicing at the great victory over one of the most dangerous enemies that existed. Well, in the same way, like the resurrection of, and the ascension of Jesus gives us a certain hope that our own victory has been secured. There's a certain joy that should come from that, that even though, even though you know, we still kind of are living in this time of fog and obscured, like obscuring the, the true hope in our own hearts, that that hope is secured. It's, it's true, right? And in the text, if you look in your Bible, there's a chapter break between, you know, chapter 3 and 4, verse 22 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of 4. They, they've put in a chapter break there. But there's a therefore at the beginning of verse 4, right? There's in, in chapter 1, uh, in, in, sorry, verse 1, chapter 4. And the therefore ties this back to chapter 3 in the last couple of verses. Let me read that for us. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Suffering makes it seem like we're, we're living in the middle of the, the London fog and bad news of defeat. There's a cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. And often it seems like following Jesus gets in the way of what we want. And Peter here wants his readers to remember something. He wants his readers to remember this this victory that secures our perseverance. That as disciples slowly being conformed to be like Jesus... We don't do that apart from the understanding and the foundational truth that all of that has been accomplished already. Even though we we don't enjoy it yet, we live in this already not yet tension. We follow Jesus who has defeated all enemies and rules over all powers. As his elect exiles or as his engaged exiles, as one of my commentators is calling us, we are his disciples. So I think there's three ways we apply this. So let's, let's look at those three ways. We answer the call of discipleship. We count the cost of discipleship. And then we rest in the accounting of discipleship. So let's look at first answer the call of discipleship. How do we answer the call of discipleship? And the first thing it says in here is that we are to arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So we end chapter three with all powers and angels and authorities kind of having been subjected under the feet of Jesus And we pick up with a therefore in verse 1 of chapter 4, linking it to that, that that Jesus, the one and true king of the universe, suffered in the flesh, it says. And Peter tells us who are to follow him that we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. 
when you think of the suffering of Christ in his life, what do you think of? Like, where does your mind go? Like, if you were just sort of word association that, like, where, where does your mind go? We go it goes to the cross, of course. It, it goes to the, the scourging and the beating and the torture that he endured. Uh, it should go to the social humiliation and shame that he, he suffered, the sense of abandonment that he endured by his friends and those close to him. But then there's also just the, the general thought that the second person of the Trinity, the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, condescended to being subjected to life in a fallen world. He, he subjected himself just to the everyday trials and tribulations of life in the creation that he himself created. But mostly, when you think about it, they're, they're mostly about physical endurance, right? It's, they're physical things that happened to Jesus that caused him suffering. It's hard to get over the, 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 the beatings and the scourgings and the, the crown of thorns and the nails and the cross. I don't really think of Christ's endurance of suffering as being a mental exercise. But that's what, that's what Peter says. It says it is the result of the way that Jesus thought. And Peter says that we need to prepare ourselves for a life of following Jesus, that we need to arm ourselves by thinking like Jesus thinks. There's a, there's a secular view of Jesus that says Jesus was, was a great man, right? Maybe even, maybe even the one great man. And the one great man throws himself onto the wheel of history in order to make it turn and sort of unwittingly and, and accidentally even he is crushed by the wheel of history that he throws himself upon. And, and that's not Peter's Jesus, the suffering of Jesus was the sovereign choice of Jesus. It was by his divine initiation. One commentator I read said, persecution was the predetermined pathway for God's son. And Peter says that, that we embrace our calling to live as engaged exiles in the world by developing the same mental disposition as Jesus. That we embrace suffering, persecution, and difficulty. Look, as 21st century American Christians, we have to confess, we really are naive in this. We believe that prosperity and comfort and ease are, are indications of God's blessing if not a reward that we're actually entitled to. So how do we embrace the mindset of Christ with that naivety kind of living within us? Well, we let it go. We let go by embracing the suffering of Jesus. When Jesus studied and taught the scriptures to his disciples, here's what he taught in Mark eight thirty one, it says, and he began to teach them that the son of man 
must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He teaches that in Mark 8.31. He teaches that again in Mark 9.31. He teaches that in Mark 10.33 and other play like on and on. The point is that Jesus's mind was resolved to this. It was resolved to suffering out of compassion and mercy and grace for us. How can we embrace that same resolve to know Christ through his suffering? That's what we're doing. We're knowing more about Jesus as we suffer. Paul says this in Philippians 3, He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then if we, if we do think we're, we're trying to adopt the resolute mind of Christ in this suffering, how do we know when we've done it? (laughs) How do we know when we've embraced, when we've embraced a life reflective of the sufferings of Jesus? Verse 1 and 2 in chapter 4. Forever, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. In other words, when we're willing to suffer for righteousness sake, as Peter says in chapter 3, verse 14, we're willing to suffer for righteousness sake, that that then is evidence that we are no longer slaves to sin and our human passions. But our minds are resolutely embracing what it means to follow Jesus. Dan Doriani uses this analogy. He says it's, it's the difference between a babysitter and a parent. When there is trouble, what does the babysitter do? Well, They pick up the phone and they call mom and dad and then mom and dad come home and then the babysitter is free to go about their merry way and whatever they have to do. But a parent, a parent will never leave when a child is in distress. Like if if you've ever had a child in the hospital, you know, you know what this means, that they are, they are constantly by the child's side, that they are constantly sacrificing their own comfort, using up their own resources, their, their physical resources, their emotional resources, their mental resources, even though what are they actually contributing to the child's health care? Like very little direct, they can't give him shots, they can't prescribe medicine or order and analyze test results, those sorts of things, but they're there. Why? Because they're parents. Because they suffer with and for a child. Because they've left behind a lifestyle that is centered around themselves. So they can fully embrace this lifestyle that is, that is ordered around the well-being of their children. Followers of Jesus are willing to suffer discomfort, persecution, loss, sacrifice, self-denial, etc., on and on, because they've left behind a lifestyle. They've left behind a lifestyle centered around themselves and their desires and their human passions and they've embraced a lifestyle centered around Jesus. 
He's their king. His priorities have become their priorities. And they have ceased being captive to their sinful nature and embraced a status as new creation in Christ Jesus. Followers of Jesus have broken with sin as a controlling master. But we still sin. (laughs) This isn't saying that you stop sinning and never commit sin again, but you've broken with sin as your master. Sin is still a present struggle, but sin is not your master. And it shows And therefore, we need to count the cost of discipleship. Moving on to verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You count the cost of discipleship, you pay the cost of repentance. Peter says that following Jesus includes embracing the difficulties that result from breaking with sin. And he then paints this picture of what the life they are leaving behind involves. These living in sensualities and passions. He says drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, in other words. That these things were activities associated with idolatry. Like this was the activity that flowed from their former identity as idolater and idol worshipers. And this is the activity that they repent of, that they turn away from, that they make a break from, and that they repent of. So they pay the cost of repentance, and then they pay the cost of exile. Like, I don't know what you think it was like to go to church in an idol church in the first century, but idolatry wasn't exactly about uh, moral instruction. I mean, they had the philosophers for that. It was about social inclusion and conformity. That you didn't go to the church, let's just use drinking party. So you didn't go to the church drinking party to receive moral instruction. It was about showing your own adherence to and approval of pagan culture. It was about tribalism. It was about identity. And when Peter's readers received a new identity through their union with Christ, they take to heart all the instructions that Peter has been giving them up until this point. And they make that break. They break from this lifestyle of sin that that there is a cost the culture they once embraced exacts. They begin to feel the reality of being exiles. It says that those that or in the culture, they, they are surprised. And I thought, thought about how, you know, when you got in trouble and, you know, your mom would look at you and just say, well, I'm surprised at you, right? It's shocking disappointment <laughs> that leads to anger, that leads to rejection. And then finally, Peter says, they malign you. Note, Peter's not 
calling on them to retaliate against this being maligned. He's not calling on them to, to, in any, the, to say any words of judgment against these things. Like they know it's wrong. It is wrong. Peter says it's wrong. He's just simply instructing them to make a break from it and to not participate in these things, to keep themselves from it. He's instructing them to protest or preach or in any way leave loudly. The opposite is true, I think. He's been telling these Christians to adopt the humble, gentle, respectful posture and attitude of Jesus. The fact that Christians are maligned in the culture doesn't negate the command to adopt the humble, gentle, respectful posture of Jesus. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us today, and you know, we've seen that in recent days. Like the, the, the culture around us is maligning Christians, and it's going to continue to do that. It's going to increase in the frequency and the ways in which it does that. And, and inside of us, that generates all sorts of things. It generates fear and anger, and there, there's a sense of helplessness and voicelessness Believe it or not, my instinct is to lash out and to retaliate. You should believe it. You'd absolutely believe that. Um, To engage in fruitless arguments. So how do we respond if we respond at all? Let the activity of our engagements in these moments when we as God's people feel our exile status very keenly flow from our identity in Christ. Demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we respond like Jesus, we show that we no longer order our lives around sin, but around Jesus. We can confidently pay this cost because our future hope rests in knowing God is our judge and our defense is Christ. So we rest in the accounting of discipleship. Verses five and six. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. First, people of God, rest. Your judgment day is in the past. For those outside of Christ, their judgment day and the the ultimate vindication of God's people has yet to come. But for those united to Christ by grace, through faith, your judgment day has come and gone. It took place on the cross of Jesus. It happened when he offered his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for you. 
It happened when God accepted the sacrifice for your sins and gave you his righteousness. It happened when God the judge made him who knew no sin to become sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. That's when the judgment day of God's people happened. It happened in the past on the cross. The trial, conviction, and sentence have all been executed. It has been executed against the sins of all of God's people. It's over. The cost has been paid. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. People of God, rest. Your judgment day is in the past. Rest. (laughs) Your new life in the Spirit is in the future. Spirit, Peter assures his reader that, that this is true even for those who heard the gospel while they were alive. They believed the gospel and have since died. That's the meaning of the, the preaching of the gospel to those who are now dead. Like they, they heard it while they were living and then they died knowing in faith that they were saved by grace and they're still, Peter says, saved by grace. Maybe they even died for believing the gospel. Peter says that right now they are alive with God. That present suffering can hold no terror because our future hope is in this new life. (laughs) There's an invincibility there. There's certainly resilience there. I heard, I heard this illustration on a podcast I listened to this week, but it was about a guy who was having his first cardiac stress test. I don't know if you've ever had one of those, but you, it's the one where they hook you up to all the little sticky things and they put you on the treadmill and, and you run and then they slowly start to increase the speed and the incline and they make you run faster. And the, so the guy was on the treadmill and he was doing the thing and, and you know, he was, he must have not have been going too fast because he was talking. Um, and he, he said, doc, are you, are you trying to see how fast I could go? And the doctor said, no, no, I'm not trying to see how fast you can go. So he ran a little bit more. He said, okay, are you trying to see how long I can keep this up for? He's like, nope, not trying to see how long you can keep this up for. We're trying to find out how fast my heart can get up to. He's like, no, I'm definitely not doing that. He said, well, what are you measuring? What is, what is important here? He's, he said, I'm trying to see how fast your heart comes back down to a normal resting rhythm. After this vigorous, intense uh, exercise, you know what he's measuring? Resilience. (laughs) How quickly you return to a resting rhythm after a time of suffering, because exercise is suffering, as we all know. When the people of God are maligned and ridiculed and even persecuted, or just face the common everyday struggles of life. We can return to resting. 
because all we need has been provided in Christ Jesus. We need nothing from this world. We need nothing from the culture of this world. We, we need, we have all we need in Christ for our present and our future. Everything we need is laid out for us on the table in front of me. The broken body, shed blood of Christ, all that he has accomplished for us on the cross and with his life is offered to us and received by grace through faith. That's all we need. We can rest in this. When we face trial and suffering and difficulty and questions and fear and worry and doubt and pain and, un, and a sense of no assurance that we, we know that we can rest in Christ because he has done all that we need and provided it for us in himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his desire to give us himself. Everything that he is, we, we have it in him. Everything that we need to endure and to, to persevere has been provided for us in Christ. Whereas we come to this table this morning... If, if, we don't, if we don't know that, if we don't understand, if we're not trusting in Christ, I pray that you would convict and make alive dead hearts and, and help us to see the beauty of the Savior Jesus as he's presented to us in this sacrament. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God that God has accomplished what the law weakened by the mortal flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemning sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law uh, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Lord, thank you for the gospel that is ours. And we pray that we would believe it more and more. Each and every day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.